Hello again and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, but not the one on the radio, which this week is the Culture File Debate with me and the crack panel discussing the city of the future and or our dreams. Not that one. Instead, right here we're having a special podcast-only edition of the CFW, as I often type but never have before said out loud. But now I'm rambling. I blame the heady sensation of freedom that escaping the time constraints of the grid brings with it. I could go on, and yet I shouldn't. In any case, in the next half hour, a journey deep into the dark web with composer Jennifer Walsh and her cat, Nomi, irrepressible Wicklow disco queen Roisin Murphy on Zooming Brian Eno, the strange tale of the Day of the Straws uncovered by artist Marie Brett while she was researching the history of the 1832 cholera epidemic, and about 20 minutes from now, Rob Long is here to provide a sample in his latest martini shot. But first, Jennifer Walsh is here with her Lockdown 2.0 diary from London, where a new pet and a broadband connection lead the composer into some new dark worlds. Here in London, we are in Lockdown 2.0 and there's not much to do other than work from home and walk in the park. The parks are full of people walking new dogs. Gorgeous chocolate Labrador puppies frolicking with shy rescue greyhounds as their humans smile on. I will always remember this as a particular side effect of the last eight months that a lot of people got new pets. We ourselves got a cat a couple of months ago and he's been a joy to have around. I do a lot of teaching online these days and Nomi, for that is what we called him, is a hit with the students. And those tedious meetings on Zoom are oh, made so much more bearable by a kitten sleeping on your lap. Last week... I took Nomi to the vet. It was a routine checkup, so I was surprised when the nurse took me to one side with a serious look in her eyes. Through her mask, she told me that she thought Nomi had feline infectious peritonitis, FIP for short. She explained that FIP is incurable, and if the diagnosis were correct, he would most likely only live a few more weeks. I was to come back at the weekend for tests to confirm. I was completely shocked. How could Nomi be sick? He was in brilliant form, in fact maybe even too brilliant form. That morning he had shredded a yoga mat before scaling some shelves to hurl a stuffed animal to the floor. It didn't make any sense to me, but the nurse seemed convinced. She said the odds were high that it was FIP. When I got home, I began the googling. And I didn't stop for a long time. Let me make it very clear. I try to avoid the medical googling. I find it terrifying and I can never remember all the jargon. But as I started to read all that I could find about FIP, things started to seem surreally familiar. Because FIP is caused by the feline coronavirus. Most cats get feline coronavirus at some point in their lives and 
shake it off, but in a small number of cases, it mutates and causes FIP. Website after website described FIP as a fast-acting disease with no cure. There seemed to be no hope, no hope at all, until I started reading articles about how some cat owners had been using a drug available on the Chinese black market to cure FIP. I found my way to some medical papers by a vet in America who had sourced molecules from a drug company called Gilead. Gilead. Now, that name was very familiar, because it turns out that the drug that people have been using to cure FIP is the black market version of remdesivir. Yes, that remdesivir. The drug approved for emergency use in humans with COVID, but not approved for use in cats. Remdesivir, the drug that Trump was pumped full of when he got corona. With that information, I descended into the world of forums and members-only Facebook groups and began to make my plan. Everything will be fine, I thought. This can be sorted. Hours passed and suddenly there I was, awake at 3am, making a plan to buy Bitcoin and install Tor so I could acquire black market Chinese remdesivir on the dark web in order to cure the cat of FIP. Drafting out how much I would need according to Nomi's current and projected weight. I thought about my human family, about how much they weighed, about whether it would be possible to get remdesivir if any of them got sick. I thought about how we humans will do anything we can to protect those we love. All of a sudden, I felt dizzy and nauseous. Here was the bizarre hysteria and gruelling anxiety of 2020 washing over me like an icy wave. Black market drugs. What was I like? I closed the laptop. I had begun to prepare for the worst. Now it was time to hope for the best. It was time to go to bed. We took Nomi to the vet yesterday. And it turns out he doesn't have FIP. He is merely, drumroll please, constipated. My plans involving the dark web drugs market remain unrealised, but I'm keeping all of those notes. If the last year has taught me anything, it's to be prepared. But also, as difficult as it seems right now to savour the small pleasures in life.
Jennifer Walsh there, and the music was called Resting Nomi by Jennifer Walsh. And if you'd like to see a quite frankly life-changing photograph of Nomi at Culture File Pod on Twitter is the place for you. Similarly, if you're seeking the complete set of Jennifer's diaries for this year of years so far, follow us at Culture File Pod on Twitter from where we'll tweet a playlist. How are you going to celebrate the Day of the Straws? The artist Marie Brett came upon a strange tale while she was researching the social history surrounding the 1832 cholera epidemic. It involved the appearance of the Virgin Mary in Charleville Church and an odd sort of contagion. Soon the artist's research was uh, spreading rapidly, taking in supernatural phenomena, oral traditions and incorporating a wide range of contributors, including artists, writers, folk historians, fortune tellers, healers and indeed the archdruid of the tribe of the oak as Marie Brett told Culture Files Rachel Andrews. Some people say, oh, sure, it never happened at all. And other people feel, no, it, it definitely did happen. There's kind of evidence in Charleville where it was located in County Cork. My name's Marie Brett. I'm a visual artist. So what happened was that there was um, um, a vision of the Virgin Mary um, in the church in Charlieville. Um, And what she said was that in order to protect yourself um, from cholera, what you need to do is take the ashes from under my feet and take them to four households. And those four households then to take them to another four and another four and make this huge chain. So it's this sense of she was offering a kind of um, a magical protective force, really, through the material of the ash. And then as it passed through the land, the ash was changed for um, turf. Some people use stone and some people use straw. But what's really amazing is, is way back, it is in, in 1830s, um, within a week, the materials had passed through the whole of the island. And so it's this amazing, I suppose, some people see it as a myth and others feel very firmly, no, this is a piece of social history. Because it's pre-famine, there's this challenge of it not being kind of recorded in, uh, you know, it's, in, it's it's like being lost through oral history because it isn't recorded in word. But uh, I suppose the the sense of it, in terms of when when I brought it to people to think of it through uh, making a new artwork about this story, was there's this immense sense of hope and a need for protection, a need for believing beyond the understandable and protecting protecting themselves and their families and and then the whole of the country by raging across the country in a in a week in this huge chain of materiality so i thought it was it's fascinating i love the story it was when court midsummer asked me to consider ideas and and if i'm really honest I didn't want to kind of make a work that was about the pandemic. I didn't feel equipped or able and we were you know, all under lockdown and that wasn't on my mind. But I did really want to do something that had, that had come up in cultural law. So, you know how in Ireland there's this long, deep um, chain of, of um, supernatural kind of engagement, but it's very much embedded in the country, but it's not spoken about very openly necessarily. And so people were beginning to share with me their cultural law to do with 
um, I suppose things that were more ethereal and unknown and some people would call it magical some people would call it to do with faith so I was doing a lot of research particularly about this in cultural law in terms of um, more esoterical or supernatural elements and came across the day of the straw story and so and then I thought oh yeah! <laughs> this is one of those moments this is amazing um, and then thought okay I really need to think about this because it really ties one pandemic to another my name is Ellen Everett Hopman and I'm an author I live in Massachusetts uh, USA and I'm also a druid and I'm also an herbalist I read from uh, one of my books, uh, The Sacred Herbs of Samhain, because I had a ritual in there for the Morrigan. And when I thought about, well, it, it was last spring and we thought it was the worst time of the pandemic, but actually right now in the United States, it's even worse. As Druids, as pagans, we honor all aspects of life, including death. Death is something to be respected and honored. And that's what we do at Samhain. We have rituals for that. We honor the ancestors. So I was thinking there's all this death happening. Uh, what would be the most appropriate approach from a Druidic point of view? And so I shared a ritual for the Morrigan. And of course, she's not only, she's a death goddess, but she's also a warrior goddess. And, um, you know, the pandemic was just beginning and we were, people were in a, a state of fear and panic. And it felt to me like uh, what people needed was courage and strength, you know, to fight what was coming. So that, that just seemed the appropriate thing to share at that time. Goddess at Samhain. The Celtic goddess most associated with Samhain is the Morrigan, from Old Irish Mor, or Great, and Rigan, or Queen. She's a triple deity, which in Indo-European thinking always means a high goddess or god. Her three What I did was um, start with the Day of the Straws story and ask people, what does this evoke for you? And so some people then um, would talk about their spirituality or their religion. Other people would talk about their, their scholarship and, and their studies. And then it was, and we'd have a kind of a conversation. And then it was to say, with some people, they felt happy to have a like a video chat and have that recorded. Or with other people, they said, no, I'd like to go away and write a piece or I have a piece of writing that, that is exactly what we're talking about here. Can I gift that in um, other people? And it was all needing to be online. So that was totally new for me. I'd, I'd be used to kind of meeting with people and, and doing recordings that way. So I suppose it was like looking for a connection and an openness in terms of contributing into an artwork. Um, and knowing that um, a small part of um, what people contributed would then be in some way edited and combined and reimagined into a bigger piece of work and having an openness to that. It offers a landscape um, of Ireland's COVID pandemic kind of lived life experience, and so maybe it's that kind of lived life grassroots very much on the ground from from very disparate sources and then thinking how, how does this then relate to this pandemic experience as well as that it's reassessing kind of the value of Irish cultural law so it's looking at what's deeply embedded in Ireland and kind of reassessing and rethinking this immense kind of strength that, that might be a little more hidden and then thinking how, how does this then relate to this pandemic experience. Ooh, 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 ooh.
the harp and voice of Ashling Irwin there, and you heard also from the artist Marie Brett, as well as the aforementioned archdruid of the Tribe of the Oak. Rachel Andrews was the reporter. Sirius Arts Centre in Cove is hosting a series of online events inspired by the Day of the Straws. The Day of the Straws digital art project is now live and can be viewed at dayofthestraws.ie. Now, while some artists have lately been pushing back against the unfair shares their work seems to receive from streaming platforms, others have been investigating life beyond Spotify. For her latest album launch, Irish disco queen Roisin Murphy took over a London warehouse for a trial run of a new ticketed online event endeavour from the music sharing platform Mixcloud, with which all proceeds go to the artist. Culture Files Louise McMahon zoomed the pop diva in her London living room to talk about the gig, Murphy's retreat at Banksy's Hotel in Bethlehem and the power of creativity in lockdown. I feel my story is still untold But I'll make my own happy ending I think I'd rather be alone Than making do and mending I think maybe I've outgrown this old town I see you almost every day And every time I turn around, our love is stuck on replay. A performer has to perform type thing, you know? I mean, I'm used to it. I'm Irish, you know? I'm used to getting up in the living room and singing. We were already developing this one-woman show, which was where I had this enormous screen, and I can kind of climb into the screen, and so I become part of the content, which is very much coming from me, the content. You know what I'm saying? It's not just content. It's actually part of me. Lockdown. There is some kind of connection going on when I'm performing to this particular computer in my living room. The wall comes down between me and the audience and we're touching again. I guess now with this social media and everything, life is a show. There's a potential for a performer like me to just have a everlasting show going on. And there's nothing wrong with that. Somebody said to me years ago, I saw, oh, yeah, I do a bit of yoga and they were like pure yoga people and they were like, Yoga means every day. So maybe performance or creativity for me means every day. And I'm healthier and stronger in that department. The more I exercise those muscles, the more every day I get up, I've got something creative I've got to do. It showed me in lockdown that I'm very lucky that I have that, that I've always had it. I've always run into creativity when I've needed to. And it's always there for me. Tell us about the retreat that you did in Bethlehem with Brian Eno at the Banksy Hotel. Fascinating experience. Invited by Brian Eno to go to stay at Banksy's hotel where the wall is between Israel and Palestine. You're in this beautiful room and then you walk out into your balcony, open up the screens of the balcony and right there is this wall. And you look up and you see these guys with the guns. And the people that I met and the fascinating insight I got and going to Jerusalem and seeing all the different churches and whether you believe or you don't believe, there's some kind of magnet there. You start to feel when you're there, everything else spins off this very place. Everything we are, everything it is. We met 
lots of incredible musicians. Actually, a professor came in to talk us through some of these scales and things that they use. Why the music is more complicated than Western music. We were there on a creative retreat and we needed to achieve something and by the very nature of it, it would have been something that was always going to be a, a big mix-up of cultures and, and, a, and a cross-breeding of musical styles. It was fascinating, fascinating. What's Brian Eno like? Well, Eno wasn't there because he was afraid that he would jeopardise it. I mean, it was really cloak and dagger. We had to kind of avoid being questioned on the way in and so on. And uh, he, he felt that if he did actually come at the last minute, he felt that he was going to be like, get us all in trouble by turning up because he's so well known for, uh, for his cause there. And um, he's not exactly everybody's favourite on the way in the airport. <laughs> but he was there on the screen like this, like we are now. He was like a Bond villain on the screen at all times, watching over what we were doing. Bring it back, sing it back. Bring it back, sing it back, mate. Bring it back. The clothes, yeah. I, I always work with the live music with Simon Phillips. He's a roadie, really. He's not wardrobe. He was our guitar tech at one time. I've had people do wardrobe, fashiony people, and they don't really know how to tour. And that's the main part of it, is that I have someone touring with me. I don't need someone telling me what to wear, but I need someone with me who can carry all, I mean, this, we came with seven huge suitcases full of stuff just for me uh. the other day. <laughs> and I always make my decisions at the last minute as well. You know, I always give myself all the options. I wish I didn't do that. I, I really wish I could learn to, to sort it out before I went to the venue type thing, but I can't. So I just bring everything. And that's a big job for Simon Phillips, all this, you know. But he turns up, he's got his, like, his black shorts on, his black T-shirt. He's a classic long-haired roadie, you know. Carrying all these feathers and hats and bags and masks and three hats on his head at once. And, oh, but he'll go to the nth degree. I'll go, where's them so-and-so sunglasses or whatever that got lost and strewn on the stage? And he'll run back to the stage and then he come back to me and he'd be all covered in cuts and bruises where he fell down but he didn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> I found him roots. And then it's like, nice one, Simon. <laughs> I can't afford to plan shows before I do them to the ninth degree of what's going to happen. I can only really pull in as much as I possibly can ideas-wise and try and make them come off. And uh, so it's always in the lap of the gods a little bit. There's that many moving parts when you're putting together a show. But yeah, the last minute for the clothes, honestly. Roisin Murphy there, talking to Louise McMahon, and Roisin's new album is called Roisin Machine. 
And finally this weekly, just how far can you extend a metaphor before it begins to liquefy under the pressure and finally splatters everywhere, leaving little illumination and a very bad smell? Well, we're all about to find out, as Rob Long takes an unflinching look into the very core of his existence in his latest Martini Shot. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. The story I'm about to tell is about show business, I promise. I went to a practitioner of naturopathic medicine recently. I don't know what naturopathic medicine is, really, except that it seemed like a good place to go because I need to lose some weight. And it always occurs to me that if you keep going to enough doctors of enough different disciplines, one of them is bound to tell you that it's not your fault. You can keep eating what you're eating. You don't have to bother with the gym. Just take these vitamin supplements instead. Now, this particular practitioner did not say that. I'm still searching for one that will, frankly. But she gave me some interesting advice and some thoughts on what I should be eating more of. And yes, it turns out there's something exists that I'm not eating enough of. And then she said that the only way to really know how my specific this works is to test it, which made me think of some shiny white machine in some laboratory somewhere and me sliding into it on a conveyor belt and a scanner whirring and clicking as it cleanly and neatly checks in on my digestion. But it turns out It doesn't work that way. The way to test somebody's digestive functions is to test what comes out of that person. Maybe everybody else knew this, but I, for one, was discomfited to learn. She gave me a home collection kit, which, yeah, that's that's what it was, with a paper tray and some sealable vials and some wooden spoons, you know, the kind they give you at ice cream shops when you just want a little taste, and a pair of rubber gloves and a prepaid Federal Express pack for when my side of the job is done. Now, I will say this. Whose ever job it is to open these packs every day, each day, all day, is not getting paid enough. So my quandary is, when am I going to do this? Because I'm not going to do it at home. I mean, if, and I don't know how, but if something goes horribly wrong and the whole procedure just gets messed up, I don't want to be tasked with the cleanup. So I immediately think hotel. You're in, you're out. You leave a little extra for the housekeeping staff. Everyone's good. And I suddenly remember that I've agreed to deliver a speech at a college, which means an overnight stay at the campus hotel on them. So done, sorted. I leave for the speech with my collection kit in my bag and it's on. Now, this is the part of the story where we say fade out, fade in. (laughs) You're welcome, by the way. And once again, realize that the mark of a professional, the mark of someone who really knows what they're doing is signaled by one thing, how prepared they are, how anticipatory they are. And I'm here to tell you the brains behind the outfit that make these kits top-notch. They send you out to collect the goods with every tool you need. The right size spoon, the easy threading plastic bottle caps, the pre-powdered gloves, the heavy plastic Ziploc disposable bag, the paper tray, a diagram showing how to use all of the tools provided, including where to place the paper tray, which is really the first big hurdle. The paper tray, by the way, is pretty much exactly the tray they serve your hamburger on at the most famous hamburger spot in Southern California, the In-N-Out Burger. Now, the In-N-Out Burger chain is owned and operated by a deeply religious family, so each tray there comes with a chapter and verse New Testament citation on the bottom. Side note, if you're ever in the same position and you notice the kind of tray it is and you want to turn it over and check to see if there's the same Bible citation as on the In-N-Out Burger tray, 
do this before you begin the process. Okay, so I did say fade out, fade in. So let's fade in a few minutes later. No troubles, all locked away, disposed of. FedEx pack sealed, signed, ready to go. Despite the impeccable execution of the event, I still leave a large tip for the housekeeper because, you know, it was weird. But then I have this FedEx pack, which is also hygienically sealed with the samples tightly locked away. And on the drive back, I try to remember to stop at a FedEx store, but then I get distracted and I forget all about it. And by the time I'm back home, the FedEx place is closed. So I follow the instructions and I put the FedEx pack in the refrigerator until the next day. And so the next day I take it to my office and put it in the office refrigerator until the FedEx guy comes on his regular stop. And I remember to go to the refrigerator to give them package, which is cold and the labels fogged over, but he takes it anyway without saying a word. And what this has to do with show business is this. I did all of that to avoid doing what I know I have to do, which is simply eat less, move around more, In show business, we're always looking for a faster, easier way to write a hit TV show or make a blockbuster movie. You just make it a sequel. You only cast big stars. You blow something up. Something easier than just doing the simple plotting work. Making sure what's funny is actually funny, as opposed to clever or wry or smart-sounding. And what's dramatic is actually dramatic, as opposed to merely noisy. Now, this applies to show business and to life in general sometimes. When we try to avoid doing the obvious thing, we end up with a Federal Express package of, well, you know. And that's it for this week. Next week, we will cheat a bit. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long. And that brings to a close this podcast-only edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more precious samples all next week at 6.10pm in Classic Drive. Till then, bye now.